0: In your Bibles, we would invite you to turn to Acts 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. As we mentioned this morning, uh, we're commemorating the day of Pentecost on this Sabbath day, and so we've chosen, uh, we think you will see why, uh, Acts 2, 1 through 13, where we have the inspired record of the first day of Pentecost in the New Testament church. And so we read together, Uh, And this will also be the words of our text, verses 1 through 13 of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Prygea and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they are full of new wine. Thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, imagine for a moment if you could give one gift to the church one gift to this local congregation, or maybe you want to expand it, one gift to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in North America, or maybe even expand it globally, uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ here on this earth. One gift. If it was within your power to give to the church, what would it be? And now I have to confess, I, I don't read all of them, but I do read some of them, articles and books that come out that diagnose the condition of the church in our age and also then not only give a diagnostic analysis of the church, but also give some preventative uh, techniques and also some uh, remedies for what ails the church. And, and these books and these articles uh, are quite common. Individuals will state, well, this is what's wrong with the church, and here's what you need to do. Uh, here are ten things that every healthy church ought to have within it, uh, and perhaps it talks about leadership or perhaps uh, certain different activities or certain different programs or, or a certain mentality. Uh, and, and you can also pick up articles that will talk about, well, you have to have a vision, you have to have objectives, and you have to have goals that correlate to the vision and to the objectives. And I do believe there's a certain element of profit from considering such things, But what does the church need more than anything else what does our church and we use that term properly we understand of course it's the church of the lord jesus christ but it's the church that we belong to what does our church need more than anything the presence and the work of the holy spirit in our hearts individually and in our hearts collectively Because think of what the church needs to be healthy. The church, and we've considered this in recent weeks, the three marks of the true church. The the true church needs the pure preaching of the Word. And now, yes, certainly for the pure preaching of the Word, you need the Word, but the Spirit is the one who gives utterance. The Spirit is the one who enables a man to preach. And and we need the faithful administration uh, of the sacraments. And, of course, that involves also then uh, the fencing of the table and the exercise of Christian discipline. Well, in order to do these things properly, you need the motivating influence of the Holy Spirit, and you need a wisdom and a conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. And you can think also of the education, the training uh, of the next generation of the church. Although they have ceased for the summer, uh, you think of catechism class, you think of Sunday school classes, you think of the Bible studies that we engage in, and all of these In all of these, we need the work of the Holy Spirit. As we begin uh, the nomination process, looking forward to the election process, I'm not talking here about political leaders in the state, but rather elders and deacons here in the local congregation. We need men who are what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. You think of the unity of the Christian congregation. Uh, what, What gives unity? What preserves unity? It's the result of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And so in all of these areas and, and many, many more, the great need that we have is for the Holy Spirit to come, to reside among us, and to be operative within us so that by His holy influences we might learn more and more what it is to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ as individual persons but also as a collective congregation. And so we want to consider this evening, Acts 2, verses 1 through 13, with the theme of the Day of Pentecost. Noticing, first of all, the occasion for the Day of Pentecost, and then secondly, the person of the Day of Pentecost, and then thirdly, the action on the Day of Pentecost. So the Day of Pentecost, first of all, the occasion, then secondly, the person, and then thirdly, the action connected with the Day of Pentecost. Uh, Very simply, and boys and girls also, You can begin to learn these things. Pentecost means 50th day, 50 days, 50 days from uh, the occurrence of the Passover. Uh, And 50 days after the Passover, uh, that ceremony uh, that tied back to the deliverance of Israel from out of Egypt, 50 days after the Passover, there came this another feast known as Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. If you want to in your Bible, you can turn back to Exodus 23, verses 14 through 16, and you can find there uh, the historic institution uh, of this feast, along with the command that every Jewish male was to keep the feast by a spiritual exercise of worship, of repairing to uh, the holy place of worship. So Exodus 23, verses 14 through 16 Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None of you shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, this would become known as Pentecost, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors, from the field, So the second corporate feast that Israel was to observe, the first fruits were brought in from the harvest, and the first fruits were to be presented to the Lord in a holy exercise of worship. And now what we find in Acts 2 is the New Testament church, which is the continuation of the one church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this New Testament church is gathered together on the 50th day, on the day of Pentecost, And notice, if you flip back to our text, two things uh, about the occasion. First of all, is a unified occasion. Uh, The statement begins, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The they there refers, of course, to the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The twelve minus Judas Uh, But also, most commentators are of the opinion uh, that the broader circle of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ perhaps were also present. So, the 120 uh, that are often mentioned uh, in the beginning of the Apostolic Church, they were gathered together with one accord. This unity of heart, this unity of belief, this unity in doctrine, this unity in practice that is so essential to the church, they were one. They had one faith. They had received one Lord. They had received one baptism. And so we also have. And we must always understand and appreciate and emphasize that that is the ultimate basis for our unity. Now, yes, many of us share a common ethnic background. Many of us perhaps even share a certain vocational similarity. Or oh, we might say, well, many of us are involved in agricultural employment, and we come from a Dutch ancestry, but that congregation, that is not the basis of our unity. At least I hope it is not. Our unity is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The early church gathered together of one accord. But notice also that they were in one place, a unity not only of heart, but a unity, very practically speaking, of geography. They were all, with one accord, in one place. And there's an emphasis that runs all throughout the Bible of what we call a corporate assembling of ourselves together, corporate being one of many, gathering ourselves together Uh, And I I say this with some concern for the future of the church, broadly speaking, and some pastoral concern for the future of this church, particularly. Uh, The concern is this, that there is a drift, and a variety of reasons can be identified, but a drift away from the appreciation of the necessity of gathering ourselves together corporately. Now we understand, we understand that there are times and there are occasions in an individual person's life or perhaps in a congregation's life when it is not possible to congregate together. Uh, We're not speaking to those occasions. We understand that because of the infirmities perhaps of uh, the lack of health, because of elderly years, there's just simply not the ability to gather ourselves together. That's not what we're referring to. What we are referring to here is the mentality that just views the corporate assembling of ourselves together as an option. Well, maybe I'll do that if I don't have anything else going. But boy, if something else comes along that takes precedence, well, you know, it's just one service, and it's just the evening service. Now, I know the danger we're preaching to the choir. The danger is this, that we all kind of look at internally and say, well, I'm glad I decided to come to the service tonight so I can dodge this point of application. But, congregation, we we need to re emphasize the beauty of gathering ourselves together. Think of what the psalmist said I was glad when they said to me. Notice there the corporate gathering. I was glad when they said, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Do we still have this gladness when the consistory calls us to worship? When God calls us to worship? To corporate worship? Because if there's not this spirit of gladness, then eventually our participation will just become routine or lax. But now, what gives the spirit of gladness within a soul when there is this invitation, this call, this command? Let us go up to the house of the Lord. It's only the Holy Spirit. So, the, the gathering of the church together in one accord, in one place, is already a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. That then will be met with a fresh and renewed outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So in unity, the church gathered themselves together as the first fruits, as the first fruits of a spiritual harvest. Uh, the Pentecost and the Feast of Harvest, it was to bring the, the tenth of the portion for the first fruits, the, the the first, so to speak, if we can, I remember growing up on the farm, uh, corn harvest. At least in West Michigan, back in uh, you know the 80s, you began the corn harvest by by taking the ends off the fields, uh, and Dad and Grandpa would say, "Well, we're just going to take the ends off today. Uh, that'll open up the field, let the wind get in there, let it blow out." So uh, you just pick, and we picked corn back then. Uh, you just picked a, a couple of wagons, and you brought those in, and you you put them in the uh, corn crib. Uh, and the bright yellow of the new crop contrasted with whatever was left over of the old crop that wasn't so bright and yellow anymore. Uh, And after those first wagons were in, you said, there, the ends are off. The first is in. Something like that would have occasioned uh, this exercise also. The first of the harvest being brought before the Lord. But now we're not talking about an agricultural harvest, but a spiritual harvest. The preaching of the Word is going to go out. Nations are going to be evangelized. Sinners are going to be called to repentance and faith. Heaven is going to be filled as the generations continue. But on this day of Pentecost, the first of that harvest is about to take place, 3,000 souls. Are going to be added. Three thousand souls are going to be gathered in. Three thousand souls are going to be converted and exercise repentance and faith as the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and ascended and ruling from heaven, begins His work uh, of what Revelation sees uh, as the, the white horse conquering by way of the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the occasion, a unified occasion, a gathered occasion, as the risen Christ begins and continues His work of gathering in the spiritual harvest. And so there is this specific focus upon the person, in our second point, yes, of Jesus Christ, but also of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And in the redemptive history, uh, there's a union, there's a wonderful union between the person of Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, just briefly, of course, we believe one only true God. Hero O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is one God. There is one divine nature. There is one divine being. And yet, the mystery of the Trinity, which we hold by faith as it is revealed through the Word of God, is that in, in this one divine nature, there are three distinct persons who are co eternal, co equal, co essential the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit given those titles within Scripture because of their interpersonal relationships one with another. The way that the Father relates to the Son gives Him the title Father. The way that the Son relates to the Father gives Him the title Son. And the way that the Spirit relates to the Father and the Son gives Him the title Spirit because He is sent forth by the Father and by the Son especially to apply the work of redemption, to apply the work of salvation, And in our theology, and our understanding of the operations of the Trinity, we must understand that the Spirit always works and applies the work of the Son. And that's why in the New Testament there are times in which the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is given this title, the Spirit of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit does not do anything apart from Christ, does not do anything that would detract from Christ. But rather, the Holy Spirit always takes that blessing of Christ and applies that to the people of Christ. And so Christ in Acts 2 is ascended into heaven. He's led captivity captive, and He's going to pour out gifts upon men, gifts of regenerating grace, gifts of repentance, gifts of faith. And He pours those blessings out through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so suddenly there is this sound as of a mighty rushing wind, And there is the evidence of a flame, a fire upon the head of each individual gathered there. And so the Spirit, you'll notice, is described as fire. And this especially focuses upon the person of the Holy Spirit. And then the description of wind, uh, that describes uh, more the work of the Holy Spirit. So first of all then, uh, the Holy Spirit is seen as fire. Uh, Notice in there uh, verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Why fire? In the Bible, very often, fire is used as a symbolic representation for the person of God. Uh, One example chosen somewhat uh, at random is Exodus 3, verse 2. Uh, This is when Moses uh, is in the wilderness. And it says, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. You can think of also uh, of the fire coming down upon the altar, consuming the sacrifice. And so fire indicates especially the attribute of God's holiness. When we talk about God's attributes, we distinguish them, but in God all of his attributes are one and uh, the same. They're they're equal to his very nature. But God has this characteristic especially he is holy. And so in Isaiah 6, the angels who in themselves are holy but not an infinite holiness, not an equal holiness with God, but even the angels who do not have any sin uh, they cover their eyes, they cover their hands, and they cover their feet in the presence of God as they call out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And it is to be feared that the church, by and large, has lost an emphasis and understanding on the holiness of God. Because we've lost an understanding of the imagery of fire. Uh, but this is how the Holy Spirit comes upon his church in the apostolic era, as tongues of fire, symbolizing God's presence and respect, as one commentator says, to holiness, judgment, and grace. And this is, just in passing, why there ought to be a spirit of reverence in our corporate worship services, because God is in this place in a unique way. Now, of course, we believe God is omnipresent But when the people of God gather together, God delights to meet with them, and He's in this place, especially in the attribute of His holiness. And so we come, yes, with childlike confidence, but also with childlike filial fear, respect, into the holy presence of an Almighty God. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of Christ, as the third person of the Trinity, in His holiness, comes upon the church. And you can think, uh, some events that will unfold, you can think of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. The sin that was judged in a dramatic fashion by the apostles. As they said to Ananias and Sapphira, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And so there ought to be a certain holy fear in our conduct as the church. The Holy Spirit is among us. And personally, the same application is made by the Apostle Paul. Uh, When he speaks about sexual immorality, he emphasizes the severity of that sin because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so the Apostle Paul would almost say, how dare, how dare the Christian conduct himself or herself in sexual immorality with their bodies. That is the temple of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is just that, the Holy Spirit. And so if we understand something of this fire, we understand something uh, of the holiness of God as He dwells with His church, Uh, but then also it is heard as wind, as wind or as spirit or as breath and so verse 2, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And again in the Bible, wind symbolizes the, the work of God, the work of God that is accomplished especially by the Word of God, and both, of course, tied to breath. Because boys and girls, just try—not not here, but when you go maybe in the car right on the way home, try, say to your parents, I'm going to try to talk without sending any breath out of my mouth. So, again, not in the church service, but outside of the church service, try to talk without any breath going out of your mouth. You, you can't do it. Because wind, breath, is what carries our voice and our words. And So the Word of God is connected to the breath of God, which accomplishes the work of God. One example, again, chosen somewhat at random to point to this connection is Ezekiel 37, verse 9 and 10. And he that is the Lord said to me, that is the prophet Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, And breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And we, of course, recognize that this is also God's creative work. The formation of our bodies was from the material substance of dust, but then God breathed into man the breath of life. And so, breath or wind or spirit symbolizes the Word of God, the work of God, especially as it is applied by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that gives life, and this ties into what we call regeneration or the new birth. What is described uh, in John uh, verses 3 and following, uh, where Jesus Christ speaks to Nicodemus, and He says, unless a man is born again, unless a man is born from above unless a man is born by the Spirit, he cannot see, he cannot enter, he cannot perceive the kingdom of God. And I also fear that perhaps, perhaps the church is losing an understanding of the work of regeneration, the work of the new birth, both the need for regeneration, although in our baptism form, and again I revert to the older form, that's just better known by my memory. Uh, we, We speak about our children. They're conceived and born in sin and subject to all manner of miseries, yes, even the condemnation itself, unless they are born again. And this regenerating work is a work that is accomplished by the Word of God, but accomplished by the Spirit of God, renewing, recreating the faculties of the soul, And this becomes also very important uh, when we seek to address individuals uh, with the Word of God. It's not just our own voices, and it's not just the, the words written on Scripture, but it is the Holy Spirit that must bring the application and the power of transformation. And so anytime we preach and anytime we teach in the church or any time the leadership of the church goes and visits. Yes, we go with the Word, always with the Word, but also with the prayerful dependency upon the work of the Holy Spirit, both to give utterance, but also then to produce the necessary response to the Word of God. Because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the person remains indifferent. And we see something of that as we transition into our third point, the action on the day of Pentecost. Uh, The action is, first of all, considered from the apostles' perspective. Uh, Their action is that they do make a proclamation. Uh, You'll notice verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance just in passing, especially to the leadership of the church, when you go and make your visits, the easy visits, the enjoyable visits, but also the difficult visits, the unenjoyable visits, go with the word and go with the prayer that the Holy Spirit would give you utterance. And as a congregation, let us be in continual prayer, that the Spirit would give the leadership of this congregation utterance, knowing what to say, knowing when to say, and even knowing how to say. The Spirit gave them utterance, and they began to speak. No doubt some will become tied up uh, with the tongues, but just simply notice for our purposes, We don't want to get bogged down in this. These tongues were a variety of intelligible languages spoken simultaneously. This was not unintelligible gibberish. It's not as if the hearers or the audience said, I don't understand what in the world these people are saying. They said we don't understand how they speak, but we all hear in our own language or our own dialect. Tongues is not unintelligible gibberish. Uh, but speaking a multitude of intelligible languages simultaneously. Uh, But notice, with a great reversal of the confusion uh, of Babel, uh, they began to speak and everyone heard. Notice what they spoke. Uh, They began to speak, uh, but then also there's the very clear description in verse 11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Uh, And maybe this goes without saying, but I don't dare take that chance. Uh, The public preaching and teaching of the church must always focus upon the wonderful works of God, because what's happening is that the church, broadly speaking, is becoming more and more man-centered, and I guarantee you can fill up an auditorium more quickly if you say we are going to talk about the wonderful works of man or humanity than if you say we are going to talk about the wonderful works of God. And so our question cannot be what will fill up an auditorium, but rather what is the apostolic mandate? And and we cannot escape from that mandate. I cannot do anything else tonight and next Sunday and the Sunday after that Other than speak to you about the wonderful works of God, leaving the results up to Him. And and we as a congregation should expect nothing less. And if we can say it, nothing more from the pulpit and also in the catechism classroom and in our Bible studies. Let us gather together because when the Holy Spirit works within the heart of a person, that's what they want to hear. When the Holy Spirit convicts me of my sin, I don't want to hear how wonderful humanity is. I don't even want to hear how wonderful I am. Because when the Holy Spirit works regeneration within the heart, then I see my own sin. I want to hear how wonderful my God is. Tell me about Him. Tell me about His work. Tell me what He has done. Tell me what He is able to do. Tell me especially about the person of Jesus Christ. Tell me about His humiliation and His exaltation. Tell me about His atoning sacrifice. You see, the heartbeat of the mature Christian is what we verbalize in that hymn. Tell me the old, old story of God's redemption, of His love, of His Son. And if you wanted to do an exercise on a Sabbath evening, you could read through every sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts. Whether it be of Peter uh, whether it be uh, of Stephen, uh, whether it be of Paul, look at their sermons. And, and yes, they're recorded by way of inspiration. And they are powerful sermons, but they are also simple sermons. I don't mean that they're doctrinally weak or shallow, but they are simple in that every single one of those sermons, in essence, identifies man's problem sin and then testifies to god's solution the work of jesus christ the work of jesus christ crucified risen exalted at the right hand of the father and once that work has been explained then there is the apostolic command to repent and to believe and that is the simple exercise that the church when she gathers herself together around the public preaching of the word, must continue to engage in. This is of vital importance because, as Acts 4 verse 12 says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we dare not talk about any other name from the pulpit than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because there is no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved. You can think of what Paul writes in Romans 10 verse 14 and 17. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so let us be purposeful. Let us avoid all gimmicks. Let us avoid all tactics and strategies that would seek to manipulate the masses from the pulpit and insist upon the simple and yet powerful preaching of Jesus Christ and of him crucified. Uh, leaving the results ultimately up to the sovereign Lord God of heaven and earth, because there will be a mixed reaction to this action. Uh, The apostles, they preach as they are moved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, The gatherers, they hear. Uh, But notice, just briefly, uh, by way of conclusion, a threefold response. First of all, there is confusion, verse 12. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? The masses will be perplexed by the preaching of the simple gospel. More and more you will find people looking in at what we are doing tonight saying, whatever does that mean? Those people who gather themselves together and then one man stands in front and speaks for approximately 30 minutes about Jesus Christ, whatever does that mean? Now certainly we give an explanation for what it means, but I want to make this point of application tonight. We dare not, we dare not adjust what we do because of the perplexity of the masses. The apostles don't say, oh boy, they're perplexed. Back to the design room. We have to have a different tactic. We have to have a different strategy. They don't say, well boy, well, let's poll the secular experts and see how we can make the message uh, more easily digestible. That's not the way forward at all. But rather, they just simply continued to preach Christ and Him crucified. And notice that there was also the response of amazement, amazement. As some uh, were amazed, but also, you might say, there, there was the amazement even to the point of repentance and faith. 3,000 souls were gathered uh, on that day uh, after they heard the call to repent and to believe. And so if you glance forward in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Uh, Now now we might say, will that day ever come again in which there are mass conversions? 3,000 souls in a single day? Perhaps that was a unique phenomenon of the early apostolic church. But regardless, our souls not still being saved? We've had recently uh, the wonderful opportunity of hearing profession of faith interviews, not 3,000 of them, but nevertheless, it is absolutely amazing to hear the testimony from those who are embracing Jesus Christ with the personal exercise of repentance and faith. They are amazed at the goodness of God and of the salvation of their souls. And in due time, they will be added to the church in this sense. Of course, they are members now by virtue of their inclusion in the covenant, but they will be added as mature members of the church. And our hearts ought to overflow with thanksgiving that, yes, God is still building His church Maybe it's only one soul at a time, rather than 3,000 at a time. But then you multiply that throughout all of the churches in the entire world. And indeed, God continues to add thousands upon thousands to His kingdom underneath the preaching of the Word. But then sadly notice, verse 13, that some mocked. Some mocked, they said, they are full of new wine." How sad to hear that response also. Here the apostles are under the influence of the Holy Spirit proclaiming the wondrous works of God and some mock. But here also wasn't this the continued result as Paul went from city to city? Uh, two points of application in regards to that. First of all, don't ever mock the proclamation of the wonderful works of God. Don't ever mock the preaching of the gospel. There's also this application for those especially who find themselves in positions of leadership, don't let it bother you when they do mock. Uh, The Lord says to his prophet, do not be dismayed by their faces. Unbelievers will mock. People will laugh at what we say. People will laugh at how we say it. This is going to be increasingly common as we continue in a post-Christian culture. By the work of the Holy Spirit, by the convictions of our faith, let that not bother us. If the unbelieving world looks in at what we do and listens to what we say, and if they mock, and if they say they are nothing but a bunch of drunkards, well, let that certainly not be the case, that we are drunkards. But if they bring this false accusation and say all of their rambling, just pointless, let that not deter us. Let the world mock. The church has a divine commission to go into all the world to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ until the harvest, not just the first fruits, but the full harvest is brought in. And so in in closing, Uh, What do we need the most in our church? I would say, and I hope you agree this, the Holy Spirit. So let us then be in fervent, diligent prayer for the influence of the Holy Spirit within our midst, so that our God might be praised and that we might be blessed. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also for the person of the Holy Spirit and for his sanctifying influence and Our humble prayer is this night that Your Spirit would come and dwell and work within each of our hearts, but also in the collective heart, if we may use that language, of this congregation of Covenant Reformed Church, uh, giving us a hunger for the Word of God and giving us a faithfulness to the Word of God. So, hear our prayer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. For our